All right. So look, we're at a, um, a section in Mark. And me and I was looking at it this week. I was like, what the heck are we going to do with this? And uh, then I, uh, I worked it out. I thought, let's do a teachy kind of thing rather than a preachy thing. And hopefully you actually might um, learn a, maybe some tactics or some thoughts about how you can handle people that are trying to trick you and trap you. Because that's exactly what happens with Jesus today. Is he has some people coming up to him, trying to trick him and trap him uh, in what he's saying and what he's doing. So this uh, ad here is uh, an ad that I saw on the internet this week. It says, you cannot prove that taking this course won't make you a billionaire, therefore it will. Anyone see a problem in that argument? There's a few problems in the argument, right? Now, uh, what we're going to do today is, at the start is just look at uh, fallacies in argumentation. Because what we actually see in both of the, uh, the stories today, Mark, is some fallacies that actually come out. And it's good for you to know what a fallacy is. Anyone know what a fallacy is? A, f- a what? A kind of a falsehood, yeah. So what it is, yeah, it's, it's probably a good way to put it. It's actually the use of invalid or otherwise faulty reasoning in an argument that kind of falsifies it, all right? It's basically like if you've got a, um, if there's a fallacy in someone's argument, you just don't need to worry about it. That's the bottom line. That's kind of the way that I look at, at it because it just fails. Their argument fails because of, because of that. Um, Sometimes people put fallacies in to intentionally deceive people um, and you can be the judge as to whether uh, that happens in the passages today. But let's go through a few fallacies, see if you can pick out what these are. You good? Ready to go? Got your thinking caps on? Do you know what philosophy was meant to be in the very beginning? It was meant to be the search for truth. Um, some of you go, well, I'm not sure that's what philosophy is about now. Well, it kind of is. It's just that they're never reaching it. Um, which is problematic. Here we go. What about the first one? You're so stupid, your argument couldn't possibly be true. What's the problem with that argument? That's one. Why? Yeah. What's, what's happening in this argument? Yeah, what's the assumption that it's based on that's not true? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow that the argument... Yeah, so here's another version of it. I figured that you couldn't possibly get it right, so I ignored your comment. What's actually happening there? Well, what actually is happening there is what... Does anyone here read Richard Dawkins or watch him on TV? Richard Dawkins does this all the time. What does he do? He actually attacks the individual rather than the argument itself, and that's what both of these two examples actually do. And that's called uh, an ad hominem fallacy. Okay, I'll get you to say that seven times quickly, but I won't. It's an ad hominem uh, fallacy. It basically means that you're attacking the individual instead of the argument. All right, example number two. The majority of people like soda, therefore soda's good. That's the problem? Come on, you've got to think. Keep, keep, just Some of you are going, I'm scared that I'll put a fallacy out of my mouth. And I, and I say, what, what's wrong with it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Let me give you another one. Um, the, the second one is everyone else is doing it. Why shouldn't you? Anyone got teenagers? You've you heard this one, right? It's like everyone else is doing it. What do the parents say? Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. If everyone told you to go and jump off a cliff, would you go and do it? <laughs> so I know what I'm talking about. That is appeal to the popular. The, uh, the hero 
uh, is urged to accept a position because a majority of people hold to it. Who here knows that, um, I mean, there's, I love this uh, website called despair.com. It's kind of demotivational calendars, really. And uh, it's got this one called um, uh, idiocy. Never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups. All right? Because that's kind of what happens. Like, groups can be really dumb sometimes, can't they? And they can actually like stuff that's really, really bad. So just because something popular is popular doesn't make it true. Uh, example three, this is the way we've always done it, therefore it is the right way. What's the problem? Yeah, just because you've always done it that way doesn't make it right. Maybe you got it wrong in the beginning. Here's uh, another one. The Catholic Church's tradition demonstrates that this doctrine is true. So what this is, is, is it's an appeal to tradition. It's trying to get someone to accept something because it has been done or believed for a long time. doesn't mean the thing is actually true. Uh, this is one of my personal favourites, this one coming up. When the rooster crows, the sun rises. Therefore, the rooster causes the sun to rise. What's the problem with it? Yeah, it's a cause and effect problem, all right? And it's a cause and effect uh, fallacy. Here's uh, another good one. When the fuel light goes on in my car, I soon run out of gas. Therefore, the fuel light causes my car to run out of gas. All right? It is. It's a cause and effect. It assumes that the effect is related to a cause because the events occur together. Now, some of you might go, oh, that's a bit crazy. Who does that? Well, you know what? This is a big problem in a lot of different places in society. Let me give you an example of it in, in the field that I've studied a little bit in, in counselling. Uh, you would be hearing a lot about brain research uh, and what people know about the brain, all right? And you need to be really careful. Anytime anyone ever talks about brain research, you want to be really clear about whether they're talking about a correlation or causation, all right? Just because two things happen together doesn't mean that one of them causes the other one, okay? And I've heard a lot of brain researchers talk about causation when you get into a lot of research, I'm doing some research into counselling at the moment, uh, a specific area of counselling, it's a well-known fact that people struggle who are doing research to work out what's causation and what's correlation. Okay? So just because two things happen together doesn't mean one's causing the other. So you just, just be really careful with that one because that's actually used uh, quite a bit. Here we go. Example number five. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, therefore a bird is worth more than President Bush. What's the problem? Hey, come on, what's the problem? You laugh because it's a false argument. Why is it a false argument? Two different bushes, right? So what this is, is this is uh, equivocation, all right? Let me give you another one and then I'll give you the definition of this uh, fallacy. Uh, evolution states that one species can change into another. We see that cars have evolved into different styles. Therefore, since evolution is, in, is a fact in cars, it is true in species, all right? So the problem there is uh, the same term is actually being used in an argument in different places, but the word has different meanings, okay? So a number of years ago when I was working at the school here, I got a Jehovah's Witness in to convert our kids because I thought that would be a cool thing to do. Uh, senior high kids, I kind of set them up. I said, righto, you guys are going to get, you know, put through the ringer by this guy. He's going to come. He's like this I was Dennis Davies or something his name is, one of the big wigs. The J-Dubs J never came and visited me after I talked to them about Dennis Davies and finding out who he is. Anyway, he's a lovely guy, really lovely guy, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he, anyway, he came out. And the thing that the uh, senior high students in my class uh, got caught out on is they didn't get him to define his terms. So he used the same words that all the students in the class were saying and they knew that he wasn't talking about the same thing and they were frustrated 
but he always made it sound like he was believed the same thing as I believed. Uh, and what they needed to do is actually stop and say, um, can you tell me exactly what you mean by this word so that we know that we're actually talking about the same thing? Example number six. We'll do seven. Example number six. Look, you either did knock the glass over or you did not. Which is it? Do you still beat your wife? If I went up to you, if you're married here today, and I asked you, do you still beat your wife? What's the problem with what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's a, I'm actually setting up a false dilemma, okay? So what I'm actually doing, like if I say, uh, no, I don't, it's like, well, I was last week, but I've stopped now. Like, here's the thing, if you don't beat your wife, it's like you can't get out of that one, can you? Because if you say... Uh, yes, I've finished beating my wife. That doesn't sound good. And if you say, no, I haven't, well, that's not good either on both counts. So what you've actually got there is a false uh, dilemma and that's where two choices are given when in, actu- in, uh, in actuality uh, there could be more choices possible. How are we going? Are we going okay? Yeah, you haven't pulled the brain muscle? Some of you look like you might have. Okay, last one here. Uh, example number seven. Um, Look, there's no way those Girl Scouts could have sold all those cases of cookies in one hour. If they did, they would have to make $500 in one hour, which, based on an eight-hour day, is over a million dollars a year. That's more than most lawyers, doctors and successful business people make. Let me give you one more. Don't forget God's commandment. Thou shalt not kill. By using mouthwash, you're killing 99.9% of the germs that cause bad breath. Prepare for hell. Anyone know what the problem is here? So there's a well-known... Um, I won't go into this one. I can talk with you a little bit more about it later. But there's a, there's a well-known um, way to discredit someone's argument or what they believe, and that's by appealing to the extreme of the argument. Okay? Uh, so if you take it to its logical conclusion, you can say, look how ridiculous this is, therefore it's a bad argument. But what you're actually doing here is you're actually, what you see here is that the reasoning of the person presenting the argument is actually faulty. And so they end up with a bad kind of outcome that's just completely unreasonable and doesn't follow. So what what it's actually called is an appeal to extremes. It's erroneously attempting to make a reasonable argument into an absurd one by taking the argument to extremes. Now, let's get into the scripture today, okay? which is Mark 12, and hopefully just with your head in that space a little bit, you read the stuff in Mark 12 and you can maybe go, ah, I can see what they're up to, because um, they are up to some stuff. So let's start um, in Mark 12, verse 13, and look at uh, the untrappable Jesus tries to get the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees try to trap him. It's just like good luck with that. Uh, here we go, verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, we'll get to this in a minute, but just quick tip off. These guys are natural enemies. Okay? It's always a bit of a tip off. If you see natural enemies uniting against someone, something's going on. All right? Uh, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Anyone ever had someone come and do this to them? It's like, you're teeing me up. And I'm going to feel the front face of that one wood in about 30 seconds. <laughs> That's right. It's not a genuine thing. The flattery is just coming out there. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So here's the deal. It's like a Levitical kind of thing. There's no social security or anything. It's like uh, basically the deal is a man and a woman get married. Her hope of getting provided for is a husband. If he dies and she doesn't have any kids, she doesn't have anyone around her really to support her. And so that guy's brother is meant to marry her. All right? I was talking to my sons about this last night. I said, imagine that. I've got four sons. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yes, it is weird. All right? But here's the deal. That, that's kind of what's actually going on there. Okay? There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Clearly, they didn't work out she was a serial killer. All right? At this point. Uh, last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> Subtle. Because uh, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They were, the Sadducees felt they were specialists in the scriptures and the power of God. Okay? It's, you're wrong because you don't know those. It's just subtlety there. It's killing it. Uh, for when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and as for the dead being raised have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not God of the dead but of the living you are quite wrong so today I won't be clearly delineated but this is basically where we're going today is we're going to look at the danger that existed uh, for Jesus the strategies uh, that uh, were used against him the backfire and the takeaway. So let's uh, have a look at the danger. What I, uh, what I want you to see here is I want you to see with Jesus, like it's a dangerous situation and he knows that it's a dangerous situation. And as I mentioned before, whenever you have natural enemies uniting, you know that there's something afoot that you need to be wary of and be careful of. Uh, a, um, a biblical commentator, Honer, actually said this. He said, in summary, the Herodians were theologically in agreement with the Sadducees. And politically, both of these parties would have been the opposite of the Pharisees, who were anti-Hasmonean, anti-Herodian, and anti-Roman. Okay? So on one side, you've got people who support the Romans. The other ones, you've got people who, who don't always support Herod. Um, the Pharisees looked for a cataclysmic messianic kingdom to remove the rule of the Herods in Rome, whereas the Herodians wanted to preserve the Herodian rule. However, the Herodians and the Pharisees worked together to oppose Jesus because he was introducing a new kingdom that neither wanted. Partners in crime what are they doing what they're actually doing they either want to disconnect jesus from the people by him supporting the romans or they want to disconnect him from the government by supporting the people do you see that that's that's what the plan is second danger sign for jesus is this one the flattery isn't it well you're wonderful we love everything that you say we've got a question for you this is uh proverbs 29 Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbour spreads a net for his feet. Now this is the classic 
thing that people do, isn't it? Like it's, it's like we just go and we're going to butter someone up and then we'll get them <laughs> when they're buttered up. You know, it's the, uh, I reckon probably everyone in this room has got a report card comment from a teacher that said something nice about them, punched them in the nose and then said something nice at the end. You get what I'm saying? It's kind of like that whole thing. And that, I'm sure that you've been in conversations um, like I've been where you sit there and someone's going, Peter, you, you really, you're a wonderful guy and, and I like this and, and I like this and you do this really well and you sit there and you just go, oh, I really couldn't care less about what you're saying because I know you're shining up your fist on your back pocket, you know, and it's going to land on my nose in about 30 seconds. Can we just get to that? At least then we're going to have a fight about it <laughs> and not be sneaky about it. Um, it's just that, I mean, you get that feel, as I said before, that Jesus is being teed up, and I'm sure that you've been in the situation where you feel like you've been teed up uh, for someone else's agenda that they're up to. Uh, and the goal was, let's push Jesus into the place where he has to answer our questions and we can hang him on this dilemma that we're going to set up for him. Now, I was thinking about this during the week and I thought, why is flattery so dangerous? And when you think about it, what does flattery do? It it strokes someone's ego, it builds up their pride and they're almost semi-divine at that point. And so when someone gets to the point where you're actually wanting to say something to them, they, actually, they kind of think they're God. And do you get what I'm saying? That's kind of what's happening here. It's like, Oh, you're a legend. You are such a legend. It's like, can you answer a question? Of course I can answer a question. You know, it's like, yeah, I've got this one covered because I'm a legend, you know, and you can see what the trap is there with with flattering. Uh, Danger sign number three is the hidden agendas. You see in Mark 12, verse 18 that we read before, it says the Sadducees came to him and they say that there is no resurrection. They've got an agenda. And that's sitting in behind. And whenever people have an agenda, you need to be really careful. Now, let me make a couple of comments for people who are Christians here today. Christians are really stupid in dangerous situations sometimes. Has anyone ever noticed that? You ever read like a trailer comments on a Facebook post or on a video and some naive Christians have gone in there and just said some dumb stuff and they've just been sliced and diced to oblivion? You get what I'm saying? Well, Christians have this way sometimes of just being so ridiculously naive in dangerous situations and they need to be far more careful than what they are and some of you would know this like some people write in they write letters to the editor in the chronicle and you read the letters and there's some fundamentalist christian who's not having that much fun but they're fundamentalist and they're saying all these things about what the bible says and then everyone just rips on them and tears them apart all right jesus is not doing this is he? He's not naively and stupidly walking into something that's a trap, into an area that's dangerous and being silly about how he's handling himself. Jesus himself actually said in Matthew 10, uh, verse 16, he actually said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus is not naive. Jesus recognises the danger and he's very shrewd and wise. You see, you need to be aware of the way that you handle yourself. Why? Because you're living in a world where people blind others by their sin. They blind themselves. They make excuses. They try to manipulate you. They slur Jesus and Christianity. Anyone who has a moral opinion gets a slur upon them. Don't even get started on the whole gay marriage debate. I mean, that, you just better believe that the whole gay marriage debate is an incredibly dangerous debate to get involved in for a Christian. Now... Some of you might go, yeah, but shouldn't you? And I go, yes, but you better be cunning about it. 
you better be cunning about it because you're just going to get sliced and diced if you're not cunning about it. And you know what? Even if you're really cunning and really shrewd, you might still get sliced and diced. I'm not saying that you don't do it, but don't be naive about it and just kind of walk into it and get cut into pieces. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that you need to turn into a cynic or a sceptic? No, I'm not. Just be smart, okay? Engage, but be smart. Proverbs talks often about being simple in your dealings. Um, Don't be simple, as Proverbs says. Proverbs 14, verse 15, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Proverbs 27, 12, Oh, did I just? I'm going to get back to that. Maybe I'm not. See? Technology fail up here. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Proverbs 27 12. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Some of you probably know some Christians who have done that. It's like, stop, man. Like, stop. Be really cunning. Be really smart about what you're doing. Oh, kind of, I want to say it sucks to be you, but I shouldn't say that. But do you get what I'm saying? Like you get to the point where you're just going, see, you, you should have stopped. Instead of just going in there at like a simpleton, you just went in there and you just got carved up. And then Proverbs 10, verse 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Some of you, some of you know that. Uh, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. What does Jesus do? You know what Jesus does? He's slow to speak. And the first thing he actually does is he asks a question. Do you notice that? He's got a denarius. And then you know what he does after that? He asks another question. He's, he's careful. He's gathering information. Um, there's information that needs to be on the table. That's not on the table yet. And here's something I've learned over the years. One thing that's really important when you're dealing with people, not just in this regard, but just in relationships, is you need to do your best to make to verbalise non-verbal things. You know, sometimes you have a relational issue with someone and you go in and you kind of go, oh, no, they've got an issue with me and I've got an issue with them, but we're not actually talking about it. What you actually need to do is you need to take all of that implicit information and make it explicit, right? Take the non-verbal information and make it verbal. That's what you need to do. And what Jesus is doing here, I think, is he's kind of going, I know that there's a backstory to what is going on here for you, and I want to make that clear. The interesting thing is that what Jesus is doing is he's asking, sorry, they're asking him to say whether he endorses the authority of Rome or not, right? But you know what's fascinating about this is someone had a coin that had the Roman emperor's, the Caesar's image on it. Do you get that? They're trying to pin him on that and they're actually submitting to that authority themselves by having that coin and actually spending it and using it for currency. Uh, And so what's Jesus doing? We're just going to flush that out. We'll just get that little piece of information on the table and then we can have a good conversation. Anyone here ever heard of Greg Kokel? Greg Kokel is um, the guy, probably the most pivotal guy that I've ever listened to or read that's shaped the way that I think. And he's got this great book called Tactics. He's got a radio program where people who are Buddhists and atheists ring up and they kind of rip into him. Um, you should check it out. He's got this thing called the Columbo Tactic. Is anyone old enough to know about Inspector Columbo, like the TV show? Yeah. 
So if you know about that, I've never seen it, right? But Greg Kokel talks about that. He says, Inspector Colombo goes into a crime and, and he basically, he just starts asking questions. And he asks question after question after question until he basically solves the, uh, solves the crime. And Kokel basically says, look, that's what you need to do when you're working and you're talking with other people. And he basically says, in a conversation, you need to have three main aspects to a conversation that will help you to manoeuvre and to, just to manage the conversation. He said, the first thing that you want to do is you want to gain more information. If someone says something to you, he said, the first question you want to ask is, can you tell me some more about that? What do you mean by that? What is that? You just use this word. What do you mean by that? Um, if someone talks about God, uh, Kokel says, ask them what they mean by God. Because he said, if someone comes out and they say, I believe about, when, when I say God, I mean a, a big person in the sky who doesn't have anything to do with the world. And then at that point, you can kind of go, oh, cool, I don't believe in that either. Instead of just assuming that you understand the same thing about what you mean by your terms. The second thing he says to do is uh, to ask people, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, this is really important. One of the classic errors that Christians make is someone makes a statement about something and we start thinking about a 25-point apologetic like defence about why that's not true. Okay? But you better just realise that the person who makes the claim bears the burden of proof. What do I mean by this? I'm getting my hair cut a while ago in Bows for Men at Clifford Gardens, okay? where you go for retail therapy. Some would say you need therapy after you go to Clifford Gardens. But you can go there for retail therapy if you would like. Uh, sitting in there and we ended up talking about God which strangely enough I mean that's why my hair looks the way that it does because we often end up talking about God because they've kind of got me and I've got them and we can have a good conversation about it and um, so we're talking about God and he goes yeah well I actually think that um, the whole of you know I just think the Bible's kind of just made up now do you know what Christians do when someone says something like that most often well I'm going to give you 17 reasons why it's not and we kind of try to defend it who made the claim, me or him? Who made the claim? He did. Who needs to defend the claim? He does, not me. I didn't make it. So I'm just going, okay. Uh, where'd you find that out? He goes, oh, I saw it on SBS. Uh, see, that's a really good source of information, isn't it? The special broadcast service. That's my point. Like when someone makes a claim, Christians often jump in and try to, def try to refute it where I think a lot of the time what you need to do is you just need to go, you prove it. You said it, you prove it to me. So can you find someone with at least a master's degree in archaeology that could say something about the Bible, about linguistics or something? Just something. Someone who knows something other than able to work a media software program, program to cut and splice all the clips together. All right? I'm not saying that some of them don't know stuff, but it's... Um, it can get really messy and really fragile in terms of the depth of it. The last thing uh, Kokel says is, um, look, he says the first two things there, you don't need to know anything at all to do those. You don't need to know anything about it. You don't need to know about apologetics. You just go, can you explain that to me? And then can you please tell me why I can trust that? Like, why do you think that's actually true? Give me a reason for it. He said, if you want to go to the next level, you can. The next level is just to work out where the argument actually commits suicide because a lot of arguments do. Let me give you an example. Uh, there is no absolute, sorry, there is no objective truth. How does that commit suicide? How does it kill itself? 
Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, it's true all the time. Yeah, so it's kind of like the statement's really saying uh, one thing that's true all the time is that there's nothing that's true all the time. So it can't be true, it kind of kills itself. All right? Uh, Francis Schaeffer, a Christian philosopher from a number of decades ago, he actually said that the further and further you get away from um, the biblical understanding of life and philosophy, the more errors and, and faults there are in the building. And he talked about a house that has a roof on it and he said that basically all you've got to do is take the roof off and actually find where the inconsistencies are because more, the more people move away from truth, the, the, uh, the more inconsistencies and faults. So let's crank along quickly. That was the, uh, the suicide tactic. I recommend you get his book, have a bit of a read of it. You can get online and listen to his radio programs and you can listen to him actually do this stuff. He's really respectful. He's not manipulative. He's just really careful about how he handles things, and uh, we need to be also. Uh, the strategies. Do you know what fallacies are in play here? Well, both of them have actually got a false dilemma, fallacy built into them. And the second one is an appeal to extremes. I read uh, one commentator who actually suggested this whole scenario with this woman marrying seven brothers and then dying herself and having no kids. Like It was so extreme in the day that it would have almost been considered a joke. Uh, as it was being told. Uh, what was the trap in each of these? We'll go about five minutes over. We're, uh, we're getting pretty close. Here's the first one. What if I walked in this morning and I said to you, should we pay taxes? What would you say? Who says we should pay taxes? Put your hand up. Who says no? Okay, it's all right. I do have the, uh, the police on the line, so. <laughs> you know, there's a sense in that question, isn't it, that it's, it's pretty simple. Should you pay taxes? Well, yep, yep. So why is this so, so, uh, so difficult? Um, so why doesn't Jesus just say yes? And the reason why he doesn't just say yes is because there's a trap in it. Now, if you look at the coin on the right there, that's a denarius, and that actually has the, uh, the image of uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus on it, um, who was, according to Rome, the son of the divine Augustus. Let me help you to see what the trick is here, okay? The Romans had their own religion. It's called the Roman Imperial Cult, and uh, Caesars would become divine. They would turn into gods. So what you've got here is you've got Augustus, um, Tiberius Caesar Augustus on this uh, denarius who was semi-divine whose father according to the coin was uh, divine he'd become God Caesar Augustus had become God so I hope that does that help you to see a little bit more of what the trick is here right Jesus is kind of saying uh, sorry the, the Pharisees are kind of saying here's the deal God's family is not meant to be oppressed the Romans are oppressing us by this guy who thinks he's semi-God, whose father thinks that he is God, and if we pay our taxes, that's going to give them more money to oppress us as God's chosen people. So should we give our taxes to the government? You see the trap? That's what the trap is. Now, uh, Michael Ramsden is a uh, philosopher with uh, a bit of an apologist, kind of, not philosopher so much, but apologist and evangelist with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And... Um, 
he makes a couple of comments which I think are great. And he says, you know, when I first became a Christian, I read through all the Gospels. In the first few days I was a Christian, I just read through the whole New Testament. When I got to the end, I thought, Jesus is a bit like a politician. Some, someone comes, they ask him a question, and then he answers a completely different question. It's not fair. Now, either that assessment is right and Jesus wasn't very bright, or actually something else is going on. I'm going for option number two. Do you know in the Gospels, Jesus asks over a hundred questions? And they're brilliant. They're very probing, probing and they're brilliant. And you need to get good at asking good questions if you're not already. See, Christianity is often viewed as being preachy. But in our day, preachers have a pretty negative connotation. I don't go down and talk to non-Christians, people who don't follow Jesus, and go, yeah, I'm a preacher. It's just like, okay. It just, it's not going to get you anywhere in terms of talking to people. And Jesus was a very good preacher. I mean, we think in the church that preaching is very important. Uh, but in spite of Jesus being a great preacher, he was a great questioner. You see, even the fact that they own a coin and someone's got it on them is indicating that um, they're submissive to the thing that they're trying to catch Jesus on. Now, what does Jesus say? Whose likeness and image is this? Remember that question that he asked? Now, just stop for a minute and think, where do you hear that kind of language in the Bible? Where else in the Bible do you hear that? Whose image and likeness is this? Pardon? Yeah, so you go right back to Genesis and the way that humans were created. It says we're made in the image and the likeness of God. So do you know what Jesus does? He says, in one foul swoop, Jesus says, Caesar is in a place of government. And you see this in the rest of the scriptures, that God ordains governments to operate. And he validates Caesar's role as a civil government of the day. And he says, what belongs to him, you need to give to him. But you know what else he says? Is he says, Caesar and you are made in my image and you belong to me. So Caesar doesn't operate on his own authority. He operates under the authority of God, but, you, but God endorses that authority. And in the same way, you all belong to me, including Caesar. He's not divine, but you need to respect him. So do you, do you get what Jesus is doing? It's a brilliant response. It's a really brilliant response because there was a false dilemma there and he brought in some new information that they didn't want him to, uh, to bring in or they weren't gunning for that. Um, and Jesus does most of this by asking questions of the questions. You see, apologetics for giving a defence for the faith means that you need to be good at asking questions of other people's questions, asking questions of other people's answers. Um, you, you just need to be good with your questions so that you can do that. I met up with someone this week and uh, I knew um, it was going to be interesting. <laughs> I knew... Um, do you know, have you ever had a conversation with someone or you know you're going to have a meeting with someone and you just go, I've just got a chill up my spine that it's just I need to be on guard and I can't just have a conversation with someone, but I, I think I just need to be really careful. Have you ever had one of those? That, that was what it was like for me this week. So what did I do for the first half hour? I didn't really say anything. I asked questions and I listened. 
because I wanted to just know what was going on before I actually engaged with what was happening. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He uses his question to, uh, to bring out the information and he answers it uh, brilliantly. Trap number two is um, the story about the lady uh, with the seven husbands. Uh, it's another good question. Um, so ridiculous, it's almost a joke. Um, what are they doing? What, they are actually saying, Jesus, we don't believe in the resurrection. And if it actually is, if you think it's true, what about this scenario here about the seven brothers? That just shows how ridiculous it actually is. So they're kind of saying, we think no resurrection. There's no afterlife. It's like you die and you're extinct as a person. Um, and this is why, because it's ridiculous. Whose husband would she actually uh, be? Uh, Michael Ramsden um, refers to this in, uh, in one of his talks. He says, I was playing one day in the primary school and a question suddenly dawned on me and I spent the next two days finding people, getting them on their own or getting them on their own with a couple of friends around them and say, can I ask you a yes or no question? And they would say, okay. And I would say, does your mother know you are stupid? Yeah, you see the problem. If they say yes, they're stupid and their mother knows. If they say no, they are still stupid, but their mother doesn't know. And if they say, I don't know, they're saying, I am so stupid, I don't even understand the question. This is what they're actually doing. They're doing it again. It's like we're going to artificially limit the options for you, Jesus, so that you'll go the way that we want you to go. Um, it's, it's like phrasing the question in a way that it doesn't matter which option you choose, it's always wrong. And the only way to actually get out of a false dilemma is to bring in new information. So you're not going that way or that way, you're bringing in something that wasn't actually an option. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. What does he say? He says, your problem is that you don't understand the scriptures, the power of God and what the resurrection is like at the end. And so learn from Jesus. If you're in a conversational context and someone puts something to you in a way that no matter which option you choose, you're going to look stupid, you need to bring some new information into that conversation like Jesus did. And, and the, the thing I think is amazing about Jesus is the Sadducees were strong, they thought, in the Scriptures and the power of God. And what's Jesus saying? He's actually saying, the place that you think you're strongest is actually the place where the floor is for you. You don't understand it because God is a God of the, uh, the, the living, not the dead. And so there's a sense here with Jesus, it's like, be careful that you don't get caught in the areas of your strengths. Right? They've actually gone astray in the centre of what they believe. Last slide, then I'll show you a clip and we'll finish. In the Luke rendition of this story, uh, Luke 20, verse 23 to 24, um, it says, But Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness is an inscription does it have. You notice Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19, he says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. Listen to this. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That's exactly what Jesus does. It's like he goes with them. He doesn't come up with a 35-point sermon about why they're wrong. He just goes, right, hey, let's just go with what you're saying and I'm going to show you in your craftiness that you're actually catching yourself out. I want to show you uh, this video to close. This was off the ABC News earlier this week. 
Um, and what we're going to, we'll have a bit of fun with this. You up for a bit of fun? What I want you to do is I want you to think as you watch this, because people at this church often go, how do you get all these clips? You just must sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and just write stuff down all the time, all right? So here's the competition. See if you can spot what Peter thought was cool in this clip, all right? That's your task. And then you can throw it in at the end and we'll see who. Yeah, there's lots of cool things in it, but see if you can spot um, what I thought was cool. Here we go. Families from Syria and Iraq have today become the first to benefit from Australia's pledge to take 12,000 more refugees from the war-torn region. At a ceremony in Jordan, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton presented them with their visas. Here's Middle East correspondent Sophie McNeil. Dressed in their best outfits, 12 refugee children from Syria and Iraq came with their parents to the Australian Embassy in Amman, Jordan. And what about koala bears? Immigration Minister Peter Dutton welcomed them and presented their parents with visas to Australia. I'm going to be a good citizen in the future in Australia. I'm sure you and, will be. Uh, I feel that uh, we have won the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> there are many tough days in the immigration portfolio. This is one of the best days. The group includes Sunni Muslim families from Syria's war-torn cities and Christians from ISIS-occupied Mosul in the north of Iraq. For many of these refugees, it's the first time in years that they've felt like they have a future ahead of them. We lived in fear. It was difficult for us to live, to cope, and we were afraid for our children. If they got sick, we couldn't take them to doctors or to hospitals. 23-year-old Halla and her family spent nearly three years living under constant bombardment in the Syrian city of Homs. Soon they will get on a plane for the first time for the long flight to Australia. I had a look on the internet about Australia and it seems like a beautiful country, more than you could imagine. Six-year-old Mariam has never been to the beach before. I want to see the sea in Australia, she tells me. While enjoying the moment here, the immigration minister remains steadfast about the government's border protection policies and the fate of Syrians in detention on Nauru and Manus Island. We're going to find them homes uh, elsewhere, but not in Australia. And we've... Well, why? Why, after everything they've been through, why, why not add them to the 12,000? Because we don't want to see people smugglers recommence their business. For these families, they are the first out of 12,000 Syrian and Iraqi refugees that will finally have a safe place to call home. Sophie McNeil, ABC News, Jordan. What do you think? What did I like? Koala bears? <laughs> I look like a koala bear, is that what you say? Any ideas? Do you know what that whole story is about? That whole story is about grace. Except for one little piece of it. And the one little piece that's not about grace threatens to steal the focus and the attention from grace. What's the grace? The grace is that there's some families that are in a refugee camp from a war-torn nation that get to be in Australia. That's grace for them. Okay? And did you notice right near the end of it, the reporter was wanting to have a go at, at Peter Dutton about the Nauru detention centres. All right? What's my point? My point is not that that's not an issue. My point is that when you try to catch Jesus out, you can miss out on the good stuff. You can miss out on the grace that's right in front of you. The scriptures are clear that Jesus was filled with grace and truth, wasn't he? 
And neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees saw that because they were too busy trying to catch him out. And the other thing that I thought was really beautiful about it, and I was just thinking about uh, the message when, when it came on TV, do you notice right in the middle of the story what the dad does to find out what Australia is like? He gets on the internet. What's he doing? He's just going, I think it's going to be amazing. But I can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. And his daughter, who's never been to the beach, is just thinking, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing to be in Australia. And that bit of it also connected in with the story because the thing with the Sadducees is they didn't get heaven. They didn't get heaven. They didn't understand it. They, they thought there was some continuity between existence on earth, like having marriage and heaven, but there was actually a fundamental discontinuity as well. And Jesus said, no, you don't get it. You don't get the continuity, discontinuity thing between life here and life in heaven. And you could see that a little bit in that story. It's like you've got people who are going, I've got my ticket to freedom. I've got my ticket to Australia. I've got my ticket to, for them, what would be heaven. I don't know what it's like. And somehow if you just get obsessive about catching Jesus out or criticising the church, you can miss the grace that exists. So be careful. And I would just encourage you, be like the... I would encourage all of you, be like those refugees. The Bible is a little bit like the internet when it comes to what heaven's going to be like, isn't it? But you can't really get a full idea until you're actually there. And it's going to be a great place.